Hello, and welcome to the Houston Experiment, a music podcast. My name is Greg Houston. I am a composer and founder of the Houston Experiment concert series, which holds multiple events in the New York City area per year. This podcast is for listeners who either work in the music industry, attend concerts, or just like to learn more about music in general. If you would like to become a sponsor for the Houston Experiment, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each rate and review will bring the Houston Experiment to a larger audience, which will greatly be appreciated. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Houston Experiment. I am very excited to have you here to listen to my first podcast. This podcast, you know, has been in the works for years. And the reason why I decided to do it now was because like many of you during the COVID-19 lockdown, I was staying at home, watching TV, couldn't produce concerts for the Houston Experiment in New York City. So I decided as an alternative, why don't I make a podcast and just talk about the many issues I face in the industry I love the most and work in. So there will be 10 episodes coming up this season, and I can't wait to share them all with you. I did a lot of these interviews with the artists on Zoom, and it was really great to reconnect with them because they are my friends also. So it was great to keep the momentum going. So before we get started, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. If any of you are listening to this podcast or in the Western Massachusetts area, in particular, if you live near Williams College, on April 22nd at 7.30 p.m., I will be having my composition, The Itinerant, for clarinet, violin, cello, and piano, be performed by Counterinduction at Williams College. And Counterinduction, they are a very talented ensemble based in New York City, They performed my piece a month ago in Brooklyn, and they did such a great job with it, so I can't wait to hear them perform it again. So if any of you are in the area during that time, come check it out. I believe it's free of charge, and I will be in attendance. And if you see me, don't hesitate to say hello. So with that in mind, today's guest for my first podcast will be composer Alex Shapiro, and Alex is a very talented An accomplished composer, she has written numerous pieces and had her music performed all over the place. And I have known Alex for quite some time. How I met her was by accident, actually, and I'm going to share this with her when I interview her. And how I met Alex was through an internet composers forum about 20 years ago where young composers would submit their music and people would comment it. So Alex was there and she just happened to comment on the music that I wrote. I have no idea what I actually submitted. It was such a long time ago and I was a beginner at the time. But the music, but the advice that she gave me, I still cherish to this day and it was really great to reconnect with her. How I reconnected with her was through an article she wrote on New Music Box about composition competitions. And for all of you composers who are listening, you know just as much as I do how hard it is to apply and to win a composition competition. So this article really blew my mind because Alex really went into depth as to the problems with composition competitions. and. It was something that I really had to talk to her about. So I'm very excited to have her as a guest. And for this interview, this is going to be a two-part episode with the first part dealing with the problems with applying for composition competitions and part two dealing with solutions and alternatives composers can take in getting their music out there. So let's get into it and I hope you all enjoy. Alex, how are you doing? I have been well, writing away. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it is very great to see you again. Um, it's been a long time since we talked. And this conversation not only 
deals with the you know the topic of composition competitions but this is also a reunion of sorts because um what a lot of people don't know is that i first met alex on a um young composers forum this was about 20 over 20 years ago i think and um this forum was for you know composers to post their music and people would comment on it alex just happened to be on that forum you know and i submitted my music and she gave me a lot of good responses you know for the music that i was writing i don't even remember what i was writing at the time but um it was very helpful and it really helped me grow as a composer so I'm saying this to you now, Alex, you know, 20 years later, because uh, I never had the chance to say it before. Thank you for your advice. It really helped. And you had a big part in me really helping me grow as a composer. That is so wonderful. And at least it was good feedback and not like awful feedback that sent you down a path of destruction the rest of your life. <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't like the advice that you gave me, it wasn't like, negative criticism it was very constructive it was more just like i like what you're doing you know listen to this piece by x composer and you know listen and see if that's something you want to use and i think the advice that you gave was very helpful so. i'm glad to hear that you know my, my attitude about you know if somebody comes to you asking for a review of, the, of their work is always be kind but be direct don't don't um, you know lie to anybody or or cover up something if they came to you because they want uh, you know feedback be honest with them but do it in a constructive way you know I think that's that's the key you know yeah yeah so 20 years later I just want to say thank you for your advice. Well, I am honored to have that slot in your memory. It's wonderful. That's really great. So the topic for this podcast will be composition competitions. And this podcast is based on a very excellent article that Alex wrote, which you can find on New Music Box, about this topic. And this topic is very sensitive among many in our field because there are a lot of questions that have been raised for years about the process of applying for a competition competition and i'm talking about fees and just how a winner is selected and those are just some of the problems that we will be going into i mean there are a wide array of topics that you know have to be touched upon but the thing is about composition competitions that differs from other competitions that i know of is that you know unlike instrumental ones composition competitions you're kind of applying blindfolded because you don't know who's looking at it you don't know what the criteria is and sometimes you got to pay an outrageous fee so we're going to talk about that over the course of this podcast but before we go any further just wanted to ask you alex um previously you served as a judge for competitions correct uh, sort of, not really, comp well, some competitions a long time ago, and more recently, um, I was adjudicating entry into an artist residency, um, so, and I've seen a lot, of, but in the past, I had done a number of competitions, yeah. So, one question that I have right off the bat is, basically, if you're serving as a judge, and I assume you're looking over a lot of scores, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, for these competitions, how many people are actually looking over these scores? Depending on the organization, it could be as few as two or as many as eight. Uh, but in my case, it was usually, it seemed to be usually about four people. <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot. Well, I remember years ago when I lived in Westchester County, my next door neighbors, you know, who were musicians, they happened to run a chamber music ensemble. And all the time, I used to always pester them if they could perform my piece, you know, I would always say, well, I'm writing something and it would be great if you guys played it. They would always politely say no, you know, because they would say that they get a lot of scores a year from composers and they have to really ship, like look through all of the scores and pick something that fits their program. So fast forward to July 4th and they took me down to their basement and they showed me all of the scores that they get within a given year. It was incredible. It was like literally up to the ceiling. And 
it was daunting to try to pick one of these pieces. And my reaction was, you have to look through all of these scores and pick one piece. I've never been in that position per se, you know, with a competition kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, my first question to someone who opens up a big call for scores, and, and we don't know if they were charging an entry fee or anything like that to submit to the, uh, to the ensemble to, to, to play. That's a whole other topic we will get into. But it, especially, and I also don't know if this was in the beginning of the internet days or if this was more recently, but right now, I think the most streamlined thing is to do your own research and find the voices that speak to you and make that choice rather than having to have 300 submissions or whatever show up and, and, and flood your basement uh, with all those musical notes. Um, I just think that that's, it's not a very efficient way of going through it. Now, in the case of, let's say, a residency program where, you know, people want to get in, there are usually tiers of, um, of, uh, of submission processes where a lot of people will submit, then the admi administration will come through, comb through them and decide which ones are probably not worthy the panel looking at, which is the minority of them, and then the larger group of them then will go and, and get to the panel for the panel to look at. And depending on how many scores there are, yeah, it can take it can take quite it can take a couple of days to, to get through everything. It depends um, on what the setup is and what the what the panel is looking for, what kind of panel it is. Is it a competition? Is it a residency? Is it a uh, a grant? You know, these are all different kinds of uh, of situations. Um, so it depends, on, you know, on the on the situation to know what kind of uh, time frame it, it is. But I always look for efficiency from the standpoint of, let's say in this case, the ensemble looking for material. There are easier ways to do it than putting yourself through the through the onslaught, the public onslaught of uh, of, of getting all these scores thrown at you of of varying ranges of quality. You know, you know. Aside from running a podcast, um, I also run a concert series under the same name, the Houston Experiment, and I can attest to the fact that I also get inundated with a lot of requests from composers to have their music performed on my show. And while I'm flattered with the requests, it's also very hard in trying to choose pieces to be performed on any one of my shows because for starters I have a shoestring budget in which I'm only allowed maybe two or three concerts per year. Hopefully that will change in the future once I get more funding and more grants and so forth. But how I choose a piece, it has nothing to do with how great it is. It has more to do with how the piece will fit into my program. And that's a very important thing. And choosing a piece based on the program, I think, is something that, in my honest opinion, that a lot of ensembles and organizations don't really look into when they are really choosing a piece to perform. Right. Not at all. No. Yeah. And if you compare this to instrumental competitions, at least the ones that I have seen, they state right off the bat you know this is the music that you're playing and this is what we expect to hear from you so it's really up to the musicians i think to really figure out how to interpret a bach prelude or a beethoven sonata and so forth and so forth and so forth composition competitions at best they tell you what the instrumentation is Right. At best, you know the instrumentation, and that's it. And sometimes they list a whole number of different kinds of instrumentations, depending on the comp on the competition. And so it's sort of a free-for-all. And as you said, you just said something really key, a very key uh, piece of the puzzle for anyone curating a concert is the flow of the concert as a holistic experience for the audience members. And as a result, you can't, just because someone might send in a really brilliant string quartet, let's say, but it may it may be incredibly brilliant and fabulous, but it may not be the right 
thing for the flow of your evening for X, Y, and Z reasons, you know, whatever those reasons are. This is what art is. It's about art. <laughs> and art means, you know, making personal subjective decisions about how you want that flow to go. So even if you, you might get some, one, one might get some wonderful music and still not choose to program it without giving the composer's a, a key bit of information of the kind of music they're they're looking for and the kind of event they'd like to put on, they're putting the composer at a real disadvantage. The one thing the composer can certainly do and should anytime they do anything, anytime you send an email to someone, much less try to reach out to them professionally, much less, you know, uh, enter something, do your own due diligence and get online and find out, go to the website, presumably the ensemble, has, if it's an ensemble competition, the ensemble has a website and immediately take a look at what kind of music and listen, what kind of music have they been programming in the past? Because that will at least clue you in very strongly into what their aesthetic is. And then you have to be very, um, uh, very honest with yourself, uh, which shouldn't be hard about whether your work fits with their aesthetic. Because again, it's not a judgment of good or bad. It's not that you're not good or you're fabulous or they're terrible or they're wonderful. It's about, you know, if they're doing a certain style of music that is in a realm that really doesn't reflect kind of the genre and the approach that you take with yours, chances are you're not going to be a good fit for them. Nothing wrong with that. Again, it's art. It's, it's subjective. Uh, and that's just assuming that one wants to, and this is, let's say kindly that this would be for something you're submitting where there's no fee involved at all, because as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this, that is the only way to submit as far as I'm concerned, in my humble opinion, is when there's no fee, but they're looking for material. But, um, but anyway, yeah, you have to do as much legwork as you can as the composer. Anytime you contact somebody, I mean, I used to do this when I was starting my chamber music career, you know, quite a long time ago, back in the late nineties, um, the way I did it was I would crawl around and the internet was still a fairly new thing and websites were just popping up with ensembles and composers. It was still young. And I would, I would explore, uh, find different ensembles that had the same instrumentation of some pieces in my then young growing catalog, uh, young, not me, but young, meaning the existence of the catalog, because I was coming from commercial music and, you know, my career was many years in, in another field in, of music. Um, but I would, the first thing I would do once I Googled or whatever the search engine of the time was, um, once I found a whole list of ensembles with the instrumentation I was looking for, I would take the time to go to every one of their websites and look and explore and look at their repertoire and look at their and listen to their playing and, you know, to see what they were about, get the gestalt of what these human beings who make music together do. And then I would decide whether it was worth me contacting them or not. And because just because I happened to have a piece with the same instrumentation that they have did not mean that I would presume that they'd be interested in it. You know, that I, I would have to listen. So that responsibility is on the composer. And it's actually quite wonderful because you end up exposing yourself to artists around the world and uh, listening to a lot of wonderful things and learning a lot. And it's, it's marvelous. It's just a, a really fun process. Plus you could do it at two in the morning, you know, with a glass of Pinot Noir in your pajamas, if you want, you know, it's like, it's very relaxing. <laughs> it's a very private thing, you know, just scrolling through the internet and kind of checking, checking ensembles and musicians out. It's lovely. It certainly is. And before we go any deeper into this conversation, I just wanted to let the listeners know that we are not going to be naming ensembles by name. No. At all. No names. Yeah. So uh, we're not going to be naming one particular ensemble or organization, and we're not going to be saying that they are evil, they have bad intentions, they are out for blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Alex, you said it yourself in your article that a lot of these call for scores and competitions, they have good intentions in mind. And they probably do, but um, for some, there are a lot of questions that have to be asked and dealt with. And that's and one of the good things about this lockdown and this whole pandemic in general is that it's getting people talking. So maybe change will occur. But the story that I wanted to share with you is about a competition that I entered probably eight to ten years ago this competition was based in the midwest we're going to call this competition a and 
it was a competition that was looking for percussion music. So at the time, you know, I was very much into writing for percussion and piano. So I decided to enter it. So I applied for the competition. I handed in my scores and, you know, did the usual thing and didn't hear back from them for, you know, a couple of months. And later on, I did get a rejection letter. And for people who are listening, yes, you do get a rejection letter from a composition competition. It's nothing much. They just tell you that, you know, you didn't get accepted. We wish you the best of the future, et cetera, et cetera. No big deal. So I was kind of down about it, but probably about a couple months later, I looked online and I saw who the winners were. And I saw that, like, all the pieces were very experimental. Mine was very tonal and very melodic. So my piece didn't come anywhere close. So I kind of felt relieved in a way that I didn't win. But on the other end, I was asking, well, you know, if this organization posted this before, it would have saved them time to look at these scores. I was just going to say that it would work much better for them. They don't have to slog through all the kinds of music that they don't that they're not interested in. It's a win win for everybody. Clarity and communication is so important. It really helps everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I spent a good amount of time looking through you know, the winning pieces. And I was looking through some of the scores and I was like, how do you count some of these rhythms? And (laughs) it was just, it was incredible. And like I said earlier, you know, I feel more relieved that my piece didn't come anywhere close to what they were looking for because I mean, honestly, it did not. It was very tonal. It was very melodic, very basic use of percussion instruments. But on the other end, I was saying that, you know, if this organization stated way beforehand what it is that they were looking for, it would have saved me time writing this piece just for them. Oh, it was a piece that you wrote yeah. for them specifically? For yeah. The- oh, wow. It was a piece that I wrote specifically oh, wow. just for that competition. And eventually I did get a performance out of it. But in general, I wrote a piece that was, you know, dead on arrival from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, the good news is it was your piece, your wonderful music, and other people will find it wonderful and continue to perform it. So that's that's the upside. Um, but it was dead on arrival for that particular group. Absolutely. Was there would there have been a way in hindsight, being twenty twenty, uh, would there have been a way for you to check out the kind of music that they did beforehand, or was this too early and they didn't have examples of it online? Um, honestly, they probably did. I just never checked because I was kind of naive at the time. Um, in thinking that my music would get in because, you know, when I applied for this competition, I just recently graduated from Berkeley College of Music. And as an undergrad, you're kind of put in this protective bubble where you're always guaranteed performances through composers, concerts, readings, et cetera, et cetera. So getting out, you know, that bubble is burst and you're kind of wandering thinking of where you have to go and it this competition really reminded me of what my professor from Berkeley College of Music said that you know if your piece does not get in and if it doesn't get accepted in a competition it might not be because they don't like your music there could be a hundred thousand other reasons why your piece didn't get in and you have to accept it and just move on that's right Every single panel I ever served on, there were way many more qualified applications or entrants than there were slots or availabilities uh, to to uh, you know host them all. So, yeah, um, you know, I learned my lesson and I do my due diligence now and just really doing the work in researching these competitions and just finding out what they're about, what they may be looking for, and just really determining, you know, if it's something that is really worth me applying to. And I think a lot of composers need to do that these days because time is precious, you know, and, you know, and you have to be mindful of your time. So I want to share a funny story with you, Alex, and and with the listeners. This is a competition that is actually doing good things. It's based in Europe. And because of the pandemic, they waive the fees. And on their website, 
they actually posted exactly or not exactly, but a good generalized idea of what they're looking for. And Alex, I think I sent you the link and this got a lot of reactions from people on Facebook, mostly. Oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? This got a lot of blowback on the on uh, Facebook, I think. <laughs> yeah, it created a lot of blowback, mostly comedic blowback, because a lot of people were really poking fun at this competition. And the reason why they were poking fun of it is because in their description of what they are looking for in this competition is that they are looking for pieces that are tonal, which is fine. You know, I have no problem with that. But here's the question and here's the one million dollar question what is tonalism in their opinion right <laughs> you know because are we talking about tonalism where this is going to be like the pre to rome where you have to write a four-part fugue or something like that are we talking about beethoven bach chopin wagner tonalism or Harrison, you know i mean where's that tonalism <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Or are we yeah. talking about like Igor Stravitsky, you know, Samuel Barber, Eric Copeland, Roy Harris, Walter Piston, the list goes on and on. So what is tonalism? I bet I'm, I'm sure I think that the spirit of what they were saying with that, uh, you know, underwhelming word is uh, is probably that, you know, they wanted pleasant, pretty music. They didn't want to be challenged with any nail on chalkboard stuff. Um, but, uh, it was way too broad a word. And, but, you know, I mean, to their credit, anybody has a right to want to play any kind of music and they have every right to want only pretty pleasant pieces. I think that's sort of what they were implying by tonal. They didn't want anything too, too chromatic and, and out there, whether it was something that sounded like it came from a hundred years ago and, uh, the second Viennese school, or whether it came from, you know, last week in my studio here, they, they wouldn't be interested in that. That's their prerogative, but it is kind of laughable when when ter terms like that are batted around because it is so nonspecific, and especially within the composing community where we we know, as you just beautifully enunciated, Greg, you know there are so many uh, meanings to that word. Can't you be a little clearer on what you want? At least, as you say, they were playing some music, so that clued people in as to what they wanted. Yeah. Well, I hope. One day, this organization clears this up and posts on their website as to what their definition of total music is. Really curious and just getting what their take on it is. But Alex, honestly, this brings up another topic that is a problem in our field. And well, it's two. And one is what is contemporary music and two, what constitutes a good piece. And for comp and for contemporary music, I remember I took part in a Facebook group where these two scholars got into this superheated discussion as to if Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces, which, mind you, was written in 1905, is considered new music. You know, and there never really was a resolution to that. And I also remember when I took part in a conference, this one composer stood up and asked a panel of five composers what they think constitutes as a good piece today. And he got like a really confusing answer. And I remember I asked him afterwards, he said he asked about 50 people this question and he got literally 50 different answers from them. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's art. Because there is no one right answer. It's just like, I always go back to food analogies. It's just like some nights, a full, you know, five course meal, spectacular, yada, yada. That's a great meal. Other nights, you know, sometimes you walk into your studio, all you want is that box of Cracker Jacks that somebody, you know, put there. Like that's, that is really good because it has to be what has to do just like art. What are you in the mood for at that moment? And it's always changeable because we as humans and our tastes are, are always changing and, and they change throughout the day, frankly. Uh, they change very quickly. And that's called being human. And it's a wonderful thing. So to say that one thing is better than another makes no sense at all because it's contextual. Because the thing itself, whether it's a piece of music or a meal, just to use two examples, has to do with what do you feel like listening to or eating at the time. And 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 both both things are equally wonderful. You know, the uh, what I jokingly called nail on chalkboard. You know, some very chromatic, thorny music can be very wonderful and very beautiful. If you're in the mood to hear something like that, if you're not in the mood for that, then you're going to want, you know, some new agey thing. I don't know. You're going to want something else. You're going to want the Cracker Jacks. Both are equally fine. They're all wonderful. It's just, what are you in the mood for? I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest problems in any competition is adjudicating art and making decisions 
about something that is completely subjective per every individual. Agreed. You know, I knew of a former composition teacher who served as a judge for a competition years ago. And she told me that when she, you know, began as a judge for this competition, there were, I think, up to eight other judges who had to choose a piece, you know, as a winner for the competition. And what made this difficult, she said, was that it had to be consensus. It had to be unanimous. It had to be a unanimous vote. And that's what made it stressful because she said there were eight different people with eight different personalities, which in all honesty would create a problem. So she said her experience was so stressful that, and it was a nightmare that she would never serve as a judge for a competition ever again. I don't know if she ever did, but this kind of flies into the face, the whole myth of composition competitions that if you just blindly send your scores into a competition that doesn't even tell you, like barely tells you what the instrumentation is, let fate decide. That's right. It doesn't make sense. It's apples and oranges in those eight, the, all those pieces. If And let's assume, Greg, let's assume that the majority of those pieces are excellent pieces, just for the sake of argument, because they often are very good pieces. And as you say, they're all in different, they all take different approaches. And so how can you possibly compare you know, one to the next to the next when they're all in completely different sonic realms. You can't. They're all equally wonderful, which is why, frankly, the whole concept of competition, in my opinion, is pretty silly. Amen to that. And, you know, I remember talking to my composition teacher after she came back because she was gone for about a week, I think, and we didn't have composition lessons. And the next week that I saw her, spent the entire lesson talking about this because she was pretty upset as to how all of this went down. And she told me that when it came to selecting a winner, you know, she had her pile of music that she, you know, she thought should advance. And it was a whole variety of different styles and stuff like that. She said the problem was when composition judge number four, for example, who tended to be more towards the avant-garde, had his pile. Composer number eight, who might have been a minimalist, had his pile. So it was very difficult, she said, in trying to get a unanimous vote in trying to narrow this down and find a winner. And she said the, the piece that did win was more like a compromised piece, a piece that people kind of sort of liked but didn't really like but was good enough to maybe win and that was the winner and she said that this whole process really did a a disservice to people who spent their hard-earned time and money applying for this and it's that's why she said she probably would never do this again and she just said basically it was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck all in one And that that is frankly the fault of the panelists, because a good panelist, ideally, is not just going to only be interested in their camp, you know, their their kind of music. They're going to have very Catholic tastes and very tastes that are across the board and understanding of all kinds of genres and all kinds of musical approaches. They're going to be wise and have have enough of a oral background to appreciate things that are really well done, regardless of the approach that has been taken to create that piece. That's the kind of panelist you want, someone who appreciates a lot of different kinds of music, as opposed to someone who says, I only like, you know, this kind of music, name your thing here, and that's all I'm going to give credit to. Um, that's incre- That would be absolutely infuriating to serve with somebody like that. And it wouldn't be in the spirit, really, of what a competition is, because it's not fair to the applicants. If, if you get judges like that, because then it, unless you're telling the applicants, these judges only want to hear this certain kind of music, you know, if you don't write that, forget about it, which no one's telling them that um, you're putting everybody in a no win situation. And it, and it is a waste of the other panelists time, too. I think I have experienced this long ago and far away. Fortunately, the majority of panels on which I've served, vast majority, we've all been good people with very broad tastes and could recognize really good stuff when it came down the pike, no matter what kind of music it was. And I, I, I would encourage that for anybody listening who, who does serve as a panelist, keep your ears and, and mind really open, you know. And it is beautiful listening to all this stuff. It's very inspiring. 
One question that I have is, do you think that if competitions actually disclose who the judges are during the application process, that that might help the composers decide if their piece is even worth applying for? And the reason why I ask this is because, you know, when I applied for graduate school, you know, I looked at the website, looked who the faculty was, and then looked at the faculty's website heard what their music were, and also visited and attended composer's concert. And it really helped me determine if that school was a perfect fit for me. And it saved me a lot of time during the application process. I was wondering if this process could be similar to a composition competition. And honestly, stop me if I'm wrong, I think instrumental compositions do this as well, if I am correct. Right. Yeah. And the fact that instrumental competitions post what their repertoire is, and I also believe they, some of them, post who the judges are. And if that's the case, this is really good because that will allow the musicians to research who the judges are, you know, what their take on how to interpret a Bach prelude is, and it will help them prepare better and determine if this competition is good enough for them to apply for in the future. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think the situations are a little different because, of course, if you're applying to school, presumably you're going to be throwing money at them, as you say, to you're the client as the student, and you're throwing money at them to to be able to study there knowing full well what you're signing on for. And, of course, you know, with a competition, it's it's a reverse thing where they're just selecting. There are a number of competitions don't and other kinds of grant programs don't divulge the judges beforehand because they want to protect the anonymity and the privacy of the judges and have them not be kind of awkwardly put on the hook because that can happen sometimes, you know, because our community is so small and it can be uncomfortable to for people to know that you are among the people deciding their fate, you know, <laughs> about, you know, a competition or a residency or whatever. So there are a number of places that post, or at least some, that post the judges after the fact. Um, well, they'll say the judges for this were. I've seen that happen in a, in a number of places. And that is a goldmine of information right there, because if you see who the organization used in the past, you'll get a roughly good idea of what their pool of panelists tends to be, what kind of people they're going for. So I would say that for anybody uh, choosing to apply to something, is do do your homework and see if you can find out uh, who past judges were, and um, you know it. It also I, I think that people in our in our field are a little too well behaved or overly polite and overly you know adhering to all rules all the time or even imagined rules because there's never a rule as far as I know that says you're not allowed to drop a friendly email to the people running the program or the thing you want to apply to and ask them some questions, <laughs> starting with. If you haven't been able to hear, you know, what kind of music they're looking for online, hey, what kind of music are you looking for? Because I don't want to waste anybody's time with this. You know, you can ask them that. You can ask them some of the parameters. And you can even say, um, are you? can you tell me who some of your past judges have been? You know, you don't necessarily want to put them on the spot to, hey, who's who's judging this? You know, that could be a little little too forward. But you could say, can, can I would love to get a better sense of this so I can put my best foot forward and not waste anybody else's time on the panel as well. I see, I bet, I'm willing to bet that the majority, the vast majority of composers who apply, whether it's for money or not, who send their stuff in to people, are not, as, are not sending a personal uh, preliminary email. Which, and by the way, when you do that, assuming that it's a very nice email, it should never be pissy or arrogant. It should just be very friendly and saying, hey, you know, thanks for hosting this thing. I think I would like to send something in. I would just love, you know, to find out a couple of things. Um, that will actually, it's unlikely that the person reading it is necessarily a panelist, but they could be. But it's always a nice way to just sort of have somebody make note of you in a positive way. Like, wow, this person takes it seriously. They're a professional. They treat their work and this process professionally and with respect. I like that. I mean, that works for me. It's the same reason you want to see uh, materials well prepared. This was something I can, and I, I think I've, I, I, if I didn't write about it in this article, I know I've written about it in other articles before, that it's really important, I think, uh, and a lot of my colleagues think, that when you send in a score, 
that it's not some crazy scribble that is almost illegible or stapled together or something, you know, you know, one page at a time, the way a homework assignment would be, you know, that it has to look professional. It has to look like you care about your work. That makes an impression. So uh, all of this, Greg, I'm going on and on about this, but I, 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 it's funny because I bet you anything, almost nobody sends a preliminary email asking a few more questions if something isn't clear. And they should, because it's their time that they're spending to share their work. And by the way, it strikes me as being um, from all the ones I've seen of these competitions, it seems unlikely that you're being paid for the score in parts if they decide to perform your work. In other words, you have just given them your copyrighted material. You've taken the time and, and, and unfortunately, in some cases, many cases, paid for the privilege to send them your score that you spent hours and hours and hours making the score and parts on and not to mention composing. So I, again, I would think I'd like to see composers take a little bit more of an attitude, never with arrogance, just with self-respect of they're in the driver's seat. They're the ones choosing to share their work and, and, they're, and choosing to give it away in the hope of it getting performed. And they have every right to ask some questions. Yeah. You know, I compare apply for composition competitions to applying for a job and for people who apply for jobs on an indeed.com monster and so forth the chances of you getting an interview that way is slim because most likely than not it's not going to get to a recruiter it's probably going to go through some computerized software program that will determine if the words that you have on your resume fit whatever it is that they're looking for and it's kind of similar to applying for a composition competition where you're by blindfold handing in your score to an organization you you don't know who's looking at it and if they even will look at it. And this brings up a very interesting topic about resumes and composition. And I know a lot of people, including my composition students, who have this aura and this myth that if your score is bloated with awards, residencies, prizes, etc., etc., that this will better your chances of furthering your career and actually winning competitions in the future. You know, and it's a myth that I've heard numerous amount of times. I wanted to ask you, Alex, as someone who serves as a judge, does Having a bloated composition resume with awards, prizes, residencies, etc., guarantee you a successful career in the future? Not nearly as much as the quality of the music does. Not nearly as much. Um, and I think I wrote about this, I mentioned this in the article, that in my experience, we cared first and foremost, and like 90% was, what does the music sound like? <laughs> is, is this person doing something interesting? Does, does this person have a voice? You know, is it, is it, is this well done? And then maybe as we were wrapping listening, you know, we'd thumb through the attached materials and the resume and letters of recommendation sometimes, things like that. And believe me, it never once did it sway our opinion. For instance, if the music wasn't terribly good, but the resume was awesome, believe me, it did not get the music any more points. It did not help the composer one bit if the panel was not feeling the music, you know, if, if it was not speaking to our condition. Uh, and I think I can speak for all panels uh, regarding this, you know, if, if the music isn't speaking to you, no matter how great the resume is, it's not going to matter. And conversely, if the music is speaking to you and it's fabulous and creative, and adventurous or whatever you're looking for in a fresh voice uh and you look at the resume and it says that you flip burgers at mcdonald's and you're proud of it <laughs> you know what it i bet you anything that a good panel is more is going to be much more likely to keep that um that piece at the top of the list and uh because it's about the music it is not you know a composing career Outside of academia, and that's a whole nother discussion about being on faculty places, and, and you know, I touch on that a bit in the article, but um, that's a whole nother kind of worm. So if you're a high school student and you are thinking about having a career as a composer, the most important thing that you can possibly do is write a lot of music, write from the heart, be it your authentic self. Don't worry about sounding like or being like other people. And don't worry about all that resume stuff. If you do the work and if you write the music, 
all the other things will fall in place. It's because it that if you worry about the resume, that's sort of saying the tail wags the dog. But no, the dog here is your music, and your music is your heart. It is you. It is it is your expression. So I say this to any of the listeners here who are at the beginnings of their careers that I I can't stress enough. The most important thing you can do is compose from your heart. Do not compose to suit anybody else. Do not compose to be approved of. Compose because you have something urgent that you need to say and something emotional that you need to share. That's where happiness comes from, and that's where a career is going to come from. It is, And I'm walking proof, frankly, uh, that it ain't about resumes and, and awards, because as I say front and center in my bio, I basically have almost none. So, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Trust me. It does not matter. What matters much more, if you're going to put effort into something that is not the notes, the thing to put effort in is building your friendships and your colleagueships, showing up at things, and make in becoming part of the musical community and the fabric of this musical world you want to enter. If you're writing a lot of chamber music, show up at the chamber music conferences, hang out at chamber music concerts when we're back to having concerts, or hang out online at the Zoom concerts, you know, that are going on. Um, if you're doing orchestral work, if you're doing band work, if you're doing choral work, if you're doing film and TV, if you're doing game music, you know, the list is endless. Whatever the thing is that you want to do, hang out and be part of that scene and be part of that community. And that is what builds a career. Yeah. Well, you know, the next topic that I want to bring up kind of makes my blood boil. Well, it doesn't make my blood boil. It does make my blood boil. And because in the time that we are in, we are post George Floyd. We're fighting for female rights. We're in the Me Too movement. We're fighting for transgender rights. And it really astonishes me that in the composition field that this practice is still going on to this day. And I'm talking about ageism. And I am floored and stunned that a lot of competitions are still having age restrictions for competitions these days. And in fact, it's mind-blowing. And for someone like me, I started composition late. Um, I started it in my like 20, late 20s, mid to late 20s. And I was already shut out for a lot of these competitions. And I remember when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, mind you, I went to Berkeley later, you know, in my years, I was in my thirties at the time. And I remember sitting in on a class and our professor was going through all the compositions that you can enter. They were all like under the age of 32, 33 and so forth and so forth. So I was already old for all of these competitions. And I remember I was raising my hand and asking the professor, well, are there any competitions for senior citizens such as myself? And I think a lot of these organizations don't realize that a lot of people start composition late. You know, I started late because I was an instrumentalist and I decided to switch to composition. And shutting out a lot of people who have a lot of good music, but have no avenues to really share that music. And I brought this topic up to a friend of mine, you know, who runs an ensemble and who does have a competition and does run this practice. And I asked him, why does he do this? And he said, well, you know, Composers who are over the age of 30, they can afford to have their music recorded. They can afford to promote their music. Let them do that. And I was like, fine. But my reaction was, why have competitions then? Well, there you go. Bingo. Um, by the way, I'm in your club. I was 37 when I entered the concert music world. Uh, I was coming from a career in in uh, commercial music. And I had absolutely nothing to do for, for all those years uh, since I had left conservatory when I was what twenty, I had no, I had nothing to do with the concert music world at all. So I was a total spring chicken at thirty seven. So I I feel you and I and that's and I too experienced that because at the time there were far fewer competitions at the time. This was in the late nineties, whenever it was, 
And so it was, it was not, but many of them were for under forties or for under 35s. And I, you know, and they were not, by the time I was up and running a couple of years later with, with more in my catalog, I, I had aged out as well. So I know exactly what you mean. And frankly, I kind of credit that in a sense, the fact that competitions were by and large back then not available to me, um, was a good thing because it only further sparked my own entrepreneurship. And as you just said a moment ago, this is the punchline to the whole thing. Stop worrying about the competition and stop thinking that that's some kind of, you know, golden ticket to uh, success or a, or a growing career. It really isn't. I mean, there are some lovely things that can come from them in all kinds of directions. If you show up, you make some new friends. Great. You know, they, there's some PR involved. Great. I mean, I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's such a what you get from being at, uh, you know, on the dole at hoping to get something where the odds are highly against you is so much less ultimately after doing it time and time again, rather than if you take the initiative to show up and make these relationships yourself and reaching out to ensembles around the world, showing up at conferences, you know, all these proactive things that you can do that are going to absolutely help launch your career without question, as opposed to the enormous question mark over any kind of submission thing where you have to wait to be approved of. I hate the concept of having to be approved of by anybody else. I absolutely hate it. It's one of my trigger things. And, um, and so I go around encouraging people to approve of themselves and take, and take the initiative and work very, very hard. Nothing's going to fall in, in our laps. You have to work really hard to show up and build these relationships, but that is where the magic is going to happen. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the answer for you when you were 36, for me when I was 37, 8, 9, you know, aging out entirely into middle age, um, just do your own thing. You don't need competitions. Yeah. You know, I just want to go back and say, do corporations practice age discrimination these days during the job application process? Of course they do. But on LinkedIn, you're not going to see a job posting that says, we are looking for an office assistant. You have to be under the age of 25. And if you're over the age of 26, well, too bad. Um, and if you do see that, I hope that company does get into trouble. That's the hope. But I think this brings up a broader topic of entrepreneurship. And it's something I didn't learn until I graduated undergrad. And I learned it by accident when I worked as a telemarketer for this ballet company up in Boston. And through that company, I was tasked as working as a telemarketer where I'd have to call patrons up, sell tickets to them. They would get angry and say nasty things and hang up on me. And I... And learning how to not take that personally. <laughs> yeah. And not learning how to take it personally. And I mean, because they would say some very mean things to you, like, please go kill yourself, overdose on drugs, jump off a bridge, nice things like that. So you had to develop a very thick skin. But it helped me in the in the long term learn how to promote my music. And I think this is a problem that a lot of schools have. And I don't know if this has changed in the fact that they concentrate a lot on having your scores look nice, but really don't really teach you how to market your music. Do you think that this is something that schools need to do in the future and teach entrepreneurship? Of course. Happily, over the past uh, 15 years or so, we've seen a, a nice big uptick in schools and conservatories starting to offer entrepreneurship and business and music classes and things like that. It took them long enough. I mean, it's really irresponsible to create a wonderful instrumentalist or composer or conductor or, you know, fill in the blank here and fling them out in the world after a few years of bubble-like education in trade school, which is what music school is, and not give them any sense of, of what the market is and how to, and, and all the other many, many skill sets, sets that they're going to have to have in order to maneuver and create a career for themselves. It is, it is the most irresponsible thing that a school can do is to only teach a musician music at this point. Um, gone are the days when, I mean, when, when you could just sit up in the garret and write, you know, <laughs> coughing tubercularly, I don't know. And again, you know, those days and, and any romanticism that might've gone with it, although there is no romanticism in poverty, but uh, any of that, con that myth, as you mentioned, 
is out the window, and I'm sure we will get to publishing, but that is certainly at the top of the myth. I mean, publishers can be wonderful, and there and some people, for good reasons, choose to go with publishers and have the good fortune to go with publishers. But I have to tell you, that is you know the, the vast majority of composers coming into the field are going to be self-publishing and learning how to do it properly and learning how to do it well and learning how to run their businesses and learning how to set up very good relationships with publishers and sub-distributors and distributors and retailers and all of that. Um, there's so many skills for them to learn because if you do want to get your music out in the world, uh, for the vast majority of people, that means being a business person also. It means using both halves of your brain. Uh, like it or not. <laughs> now, it's great for the people who really don't want to use that other hemisphere of their brain. Publishers are a fantastic, uh, a good publisher is a fantastic partner and a very excellent thing to have. Same thing with record companies, etc. But you should always know what your options are. So we can talk much more about this you know, later. But, but yeah, this is um, the whole thing about entrepreneur uh, programs, entrepreneurial programs. They, there are more of them now, thank goodness. And they're incredibly important. Plus, there's something now that you and I did not have when we were coming up. I mean, I'm older than you, but given what you're saying about these courses, you know, weren't around when you were around. Neither one of us had all these gazillions of YouTube videos and how to everything online at the click of a finger, you know, uh, with your Pinot Noir in your pajamas, you know, at two in the morning. Right. Like it's it's amazing. The resources now that anybody of any age and any background, you know, that all of us have amazing resources available to us, the how-tos of everything at our fingertips, where we did not have that 20 years ago, or even maybe 15 years ago, it has, it has exploded. And that is a huge bonus, this kind of access that we all have. It plays into, I, I speak about this when I talk a lot about, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion issues. I talk about technology and the internet as being a huge front and center uh, uh, real reason for this and reality about access. Because artistically, if you're publishing yourself, you don't have to worry about anybody else approving you and patting you on the head. Financially, you can self-publish and get all the money. And in terms of equity, anybody, no matter what our color, what our background, what our gender, what our, our uh, you know identification is in any way, we all have equal access if we're lucky enough to be able to afford an internet bill every every month, right? That's the baseline. Uh, so there is an economic comp uh, portion to this. You have to be able to have uh, you know a Wi-Fi connection. But assuming you can get that together, then the sky is the limit in terms of your access. That's huge. That's one of the reasons we're seeing so many more composers who are people of color and women and everybody else, LGBTQIA+, everybody coming into the field. And especially in the band world, we're seeing a lot more of this. I just wrote a chapter for a book about this in the band world. Um, it's really exciting to see. And the reason that they can enter the field is because the gatekeepers, who used to be really kind of palsy with a lot of white guys, and it's not that they were intentionally discriminatory or nasty people. It's just that they kept programming and welcoming in under the tent the people that they were comfortable with and hung out with the most and the people who looked like them because it didn't occur to them that there's music coming from the rest of us, right? And so all of a sudden, when we have control of getting our own music out there and making our own relationships, showing up at things, et cetera, and not relying on being accepted by another institution to have this access to the, to our potential public and our potential fans of our music. All of that starts to disappear. It's taking time. We still have a long way to go, but it's a really different world now than it was even 10 years ago. When I entered the band world, I was one of the very few women composers walking around that floor of the Midwest Clinic. Um, you know, there just weren't that many. And now, you know, throw a rock, throw a baton and you'll stab one. I mean, it's like we're everywhere. It's fantastic. So it's, it's, I really uh, credit technology with a lot of this. I know I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent, but it is completely tied in with that whole concept, Greg, of entrepreneurship, you know, that you, that you raised. And that concludes part one of this podcast. Next week, I will post part two, where I'll be discussing with Alex alternatives composers can take in getting their music performed. If you want earlier access to part two of my discussion with Alex and for future episodes as well, you can become a member of my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash experiment. If you become a member, not only will you have early access to my podcast, 
but you will have more access to recordings and performances of my upcoming concerts, which will be starting this fall. Each person who becomes a sponsor not only helps fund this podcast, but will also help me program concerts in the future and give composers who normally wouldn't have a chance to have their music performed get their moment in the sun. So until next time, I will see you soon. And that concludes the Houston Experiment podcast. As a reminder, if you would like to become a sponsor, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the show, please take a moment and go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Houston Experiment. Each review helps bring the Houston Experiment podcast to a larger audience, which will greatly be appreciated.